everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Associated Podcast. I'm here today with my co-host, Francesca. Hi, Petra. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. It's a new week, you know, full of hope. I'm very excited of all the exciting things, both work and non-work related. What about you? Yeah, no good. I just read up on Boris's new announcement of the post-December 2nd rules. Seems like hopefully we'll be out and about getting to see everyone, which will be nice. Yeah, I think that's why my my mood has been like significantly elevated recently. One, we now have like two options for the vaccine. And there's a light at the end of the tunnel to this lockdown, which is great. I'm very excited about that. But I'm also excited about our guest today. Francesca, do you want to introduce lovely Hector? Yes, absolutely. So we've got Hector Mason from episode one. Hello, Hector. How are you? Hey, guys. I'm well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Our absolute pleasure. So, <laughs> I mean, episode one is one of my favorite funds. I'm not going to lie. Love your portfolio. But for those who don't know episode one too well, it'd be great to get a bit of an overview of who you guys are. Sure. I'll give you the, the short version. Keep it short and snappy. So it's um, so we're a B2B VC fund based in London. We invest in B2B companies at seed stage. Typically, sort of 1.2 million is about the average check size. And the fund two portfolio is split really three ways. I'd say about a third is deep tech. About a third is marketplace businesses, but often slightly technical marketplace businesses rather than just sort of off-the-shelf technology being used to uh, match buyer and seller. And then the final third is sort of traditional B2B enterprise SaaS. We try and invest really early. Most of it's at seed. I'd say 10% is at pre-seed, perhaps. I love doing the pre-seed stuff. Uh, so I'd love that number to be higher. But our bread and butter is definitely seed stage, kind of around a million pounds. And yeah, UK only, um, B2B. That's kind of the headline um, of what we are. Awesome. I actually remember when I was applying for Manta Ray, reading a ton of your articles. Well, no, I don't know if it was yours specifically, but I think it was from all the authors. But I think you guys probably have the most comprehensive content libraries of European VCs. I know Index, for example, does a lot of those expansion books and guide to compensation but the content at episode one is super specific. Like you guys go into titles like, you know, what we mean when we say it's too early, which, you know, obviously founders hear a lot. And, and I think that it's very useful to get that kind of personalized insight. Do you think that's uh, one of the selling points of episode one as well? Like just the amount of, of content you guys produce? So um, what we mean by too early that is one of mine. So thanks for reading it. Um, uh, and I mean, the reason I wrote that, so so I, the articles that I quite enjoy writing are ones that are hopefully pretty accessible and kind of stuff that lots of people want to know the answer to. So we've done quite a lot of analysis on our um, content and worked out what lands really well and what gets good engagement, et cetera. And one of the insights was that stuff that's focused towards founders gets better reception, better sort of read rates and things. Don't know why that is. I think it's probably because mostly founders are on our database or maybe that founders are more receptive to receiving advice than other investors or whatever. It could be any number of different things. But I don't know if the content itself is is a sort of differentiator. I think actions kind of speak louder than words in everything and in VC as, as well. 
Um, and so you certainly have to put into practice what you're talking about. Um, and I think hopefully, you know, it's, it's doing the things that we talk about that actually builds our reputation and creates the virtuous circle that we see in VC where you invest in a company, you help it, you create a successful company. Other companies, other founders see that you create successful companies and they want to get money from you. And so you start getting access to really good deals um, and it, you see the virtuous circle. Um, content possibly plays a part into that because I think brand in VC is important. But I don't think our content is something that, you know, really stands us out. Uh, well, I like to think anyway that it's kind of the way that we work with founders is what what stands us out because we are mostly a team of founders ourselves um, or have founded one or multiple businesses and exited various businesses. And so we really understand what it's like to be a founder and empathize with founders are going through. And naturally, we're the type of people who can't help but roll up our sleeves and get very involved in the companies. And that is something that the that most of the companies really value. Not all companies do because there are companies who, who don't really need um, help. And often they're the very best ones. But our thought is that you can kind of move the needle a little bit by helping those middle of the pack companies become the sort of real challenges and the, the top companies in our portfolio. Wow, so much to unpack there. I mean, we definitely want to talk about your own founder story, but um, just going off of what you said with regards to helping your companies operationally and rolling up your sleeves, what does that entail? Is it hiring, BD? Yeah. So so we've had um, over the years a number of different sort of approaches and we've kind of honed it now. So over the years, we've had internal people who will help our portfolio in certain respects, whether that's go-to-market or um, finance. What we've landed on that works really well, and this is through just seeing and learning what, what works well, what we've landed on is having basically a pool of really highly trusted partners, external, who we work with regularly um, and who are suitable for all of our portfolio companies. So what didn't work in the past is having someone who is the person who helps companies on go-to-market because it, it it just doesn't necessarily work for all companies because every company is so different. And so it's better to have a pool of people that you really trust who you can take any given company and say, oh, well, okay, th this is the right person or the right organization for you guys to get advice on go-to-market from. And the, the sort of key areas that we help our portfolio companies with are primarily strategy. And that that is from... Um, Whichever partner invests will be the primary person helping on strategy. So we take a board director seat and a board observer seat. So most of the help will come from the board director and the board observer. That's typically both of those positions will be a partner in episode one. Then beyond that, uh, we do a lot of help on ghost market because we're investing in B2B SaaS companies um, and, and also deep tech where going to market can be very difficult and um quite a sort of long-term game and you have to be very strategic about it um, and not focus on sort of short-term small wins. You have to kind of maintain focus on the long-term um, vision. Um, and then also one of the uh, bits of help that our portfolio companies value the most is help around people and cultures. We've been working with Anuk at Unleashed a lot and she is incredibly valuable for our portfolio companies, helping them create the right people and culture. So culture in terms of how do we build a culture that people want to join and how can we build a culture that attracts the right sort of talent to build a, a really strong company. 
and also just things like putting out the right job descriptions to attract talent. So those are kind of the key areas. And then also we have a head of finance who's just joined, who helps the companies kind of with their financial modeling, helping them work out uh, what the right approach is, timelines around fundraising, um, that sort of thing. So we've really honed it to a few core, uh, I guess, competencies that the companies find they most often need help with. Super interesting. I'm I'm going to go back to the content side because, as you said, it's a lot about doing rather than you know writing. Mm. But I want to bring up the <coughs> bit of content that you wrote about getting a job in BC because it reflects that you you did quite um, a lot of doing in order to get your role at episode one. So I'd love to hear the story again because it's one of my favorite stories. Sure, sure. So interestingly, VC wasn't really on my radar. Um, well, I had a couple of sort of small startups years ago, but weirdly, my first ever job slash internship that I applied to when I was 17 was VC. And um, I was called up at 7.30 at night, having submitted an application and caught completely off guard as a quivering um, 17 year old on the end of the phone and probably put in a, the worst performance of my life. So didn't get that. Um, but then anyway, started off my career, had a couple of businesses went to work in innovation consultancy and someone was on episode one's mailing list and sent me the email where they advertised the associate role and said, this job sounds like it would suit you. Um, and anyway, I read it and thought, yeah, actually it does, but I'm going to stick out my job in innovation consultancy for now because I'm going to try and get a promotion and sort of go from there. Anyway, the weekend came, I self-reflected and realized how much I hated my old job um, <laughs> and that I really needed to get out. But didn't you also send this job spec to a friend of yours as well? Was that right? Yeah, yeah. So but you're like, yeah, this sounds like a great job. <laughs> so I so I sent the job to, when I decided that I was going to stick it out in my old job, um, I sent the job spec to my housemate and said, <laughs> you should go for this. This looks so cool. Uh, anyway, the weekend came and I was like, actually, no, this looks really good. I'm going to apply myself. So I applied and they initially rejected me um, because I'd had tons of applications from people with lots of private VC experience, lots of founder experience, et cetera, good looking candidates. And I was relatively inexperienced. And anyway, yeah, I was about to head into a meeting um, at my old work when I got the rejection note. And I thought I was literally typing out thanks very much for considering, bear me in mind for a future role kind of thing. When I, I'd literally written that email, I was like, actually, no, I've got three minutes before this next meeting. I'm going to delete that and just go for it. So I said something along the lines of, I'd urge you to reconsider for blah, blah, blah reasons. And then also turned up at their door unannounced, uh, <laughs> thinking that that might somehow shine a positive light on me. And anyway, after doing these two things, a few days later, I heard back from them being like, due to your persistence, we'll give you a phone interview. And I had the phone interview and uh, it went from there. I love that story. <laughs> persistence is key, obviously, when it, it comes to... It certainly is. Man. Yeah, no, definitely. I love that. And and obviously, you, know, you said you weren't so keen on your innovation consulting role at the time. Mm. What was the reason for you wanting to you know, try so hard to get into episode yeah. one? So I, yeah, it's a good question, actually, because it is, it's, it's a big thing that. So I, it was the only job that I applied to. And I started reading about VC as part of the application process, because obviously I had to be able to talk somewhat compellingly about the industry. Um, and so just started reading Medium articles, you know, watching videos on YouTube of VC speaking, things like that. 
And the more I read about it, the more I watched about it, the more I learned about it, the more I wanted to continue doing those things. And that kind of made me realize, okay, this good side, I, I just want to keep on learning about this thing. I feel like there's so much in it that appeals to me. And what's more is that it's kind of a natural fit between two things that I love. And one of them is investing in the other startups. And VC is kind of the perfect intersection of those two things. So the more I kind of thought about it, the more I started reading about it and all of these things, I just became hell bent on getting this job at episode one. And so spent a lot of time learning about the industry, learning about companies, looking at episode one, thinking about what the things were going to be that episode one would look for in me and you know practiced interviews in my head literally thinking for each interview and there are a few kind of going through questions that they might ask and thinking okay what what should I talk about here um, I mean hours and hours I reckon 25 hours worth of prep in total went into getting the job so I really wanted it and that probably came through um, that I wanted it the most yeah I mean well Congratulations, the work will be paid off. And I'm curious to know, now that you've been at episode one for a while, um, mm. what have you learned? I remember a while ago, I mean, I mean, fortunate enough to bump into each other at a few networking events that you were so excited to have found a deal and, and have, have pushed that through. So that was obviously a huge, exciting milestone. There was yeah. a a VC yacht trip. So I was wondering, like, what are some of the highlights? What are some of the surprises that you've had since landing your job? Yeah, I think so. So the thing that really I think keeps you going in VC is when you come across an amazing company, and it doesn't happen every day by any means because most of the job actually is saying no, uh, which which is conversely that's the worst thing about the job is how much you have to say no, and it's almost constant you know we see thousands of companies a year and invest in between eight and 12 so it's a tiny portion of companies that we say yes to that said we find many more than that those 10 companies interesting so there are some great companies in there and yeah the most exciting thing is when you come across a great company and you're sat across from the founder thinking i just get this this is amazing you're amazing. You're going to stop at nothing to build this um, into a great business. And so that's the kind of number one thing that I think keeps me going. And I, I would assume keeps most VCs going. Um, and just being able to learn about all the wide reaching industries that we work in and deal with from kind of the, the cold face, you know, from the founders themselves and they're the ones who know the business and the markets best. Um, so, so that's great. I mean, there have been kind of, I guess, superficial things that are awesome, like um, you, know, you, you mentioned the sailing trip. That was a big excitement at the time because so we have a, an investor in our fund who organizes that trip each year. Sadly, it was canceled this year. And they invited us and very kindly, the partners of episode one said um, that I could go. And that was cool. You know, that, that just felt glamorous, I guess, and everything that I hoped VC would be. You know, naturally, it is still working. So it's not a total holiday, but it's it's a cool thing um, to have done. And then I suppose a, a sort of extension to the first point I made is finding companies to actually invest in and seeing a company that you found go through the process. You win over the partners. Uh, they get excited. You have this sort of few weeks of all being super excited about a company and you're behind it and you're trying to get the deal through, trying to win the deal. Um, and then eventually you've won the deal and you've invested and it's that's a really satisfying feeling and 
made probably particularly satisfying by the fact it hardly ever happens. Um, so, I mean, I've had yeah a few a few deals that I've sourced that we've ended up investing in. A couple of others that we've had term sheets out for that we've sadly lost. One of those was Hopping. Um, I don't know how much you've heard about Hopping. Oh no! Um, yeah, <laughs> I know, I know. And um, so I think our stake would have been worth about 150 million by now, almost tripling the size of our fund, um, which would have been amazing. But we offered them two million pounds, and Axel and also offered them six or something like that. So we're not kicking ourselves too badly. Mm. Well, you can't win every deal, and you've got plenty of amazing companies on your portfolio that I'm sure will get those returns for you. But in regards to you mentioned, which is super helpful, kind of the process from finding a startup mm. to getting it to investment. What are there certain characteristics or data points that you're looking for, in mm. particular what episode one is looking for? Yeah, so I think the table stakes is, are you doing something really interesting that you know we're going to have to go along to board meetings for possibly 10 years or more? So are we interested in what you're doing and are we going to enjoy going along to those board meetings? So that's just personal taste and in, in what we find interesting. Uh, then the other sort of table states is, is the market big enough? So is what you're doing in a huge market? Is it a pain point that's felt strongly enough by enough people to build a, a billion pound business? And once those two checkboxes are checked, it's mostly down to the founder at the stage that we're investing. It's um, like I said earlier, it's are you sat opposite them thinking um, this person is amazing? They're super smart. Um, they're really tenacious. They, they won't give up enormously ambitious you know possibly the right experience to build this and will stop at nothing to build an enormous business um, these are all things that we want to see in the founders that we're investing in and uh, you know smart business model and all, all of the things that come with those those three things it's mostly on the founder once the table stakes have been met and in terms of convincing the partnership how does that differ between let's say the conviction that you need to build from speaking to the founder versus the partnership building conviction in you, more specifically in your judgment of the company and of the company itself? Yes. Yeah. So if I, if I meet a company, so I often take first meetings with companies. If I really like it, then I will pitch that company in our Monday morning meeting to the partnership. Um, and my job is to get at least one partner excited about it. And then we, we go from there. So once I've met a company and find it exciting, my job is to do, do that founder justice by doing a good pitch myself on that Monday morning meeting. And so that's usually a case of just conveying those few things that I talked about. It's was I super excited about the founder? Is the market massive? Um, and are they doing something really interesting that the partners find interesting as well? And then What's interesting is that it kind of depends on how you're feeling that uh, Monday morning as to how um, how compellingly you will pitch. Because um, if you're feeling a bit deflated, tired, whatever, then it's just harder to pitch convincingly, as any founder would tell you as well. So you definitely sort of pitch some businesses and think, yeah, I nailed that pitch. The founder would be proud. And then other pitches, you're just like, ah, I didn't really do that justice. But usually, you know, there's leeway. I mean, if, if the business is interesting, the partners will be interested. And the, the other thing to that is um, 
certainly at the start, you know, I had to build trust. So the, the partners didn't know what my judgment was like with, with companies. They had no reason to believe that if I liked the company, they should. But over time, you build trust and you start delivering really interesting companies and pitching really interesting companies. And they learn that when I say that I really think you should meet this company, they'll, they'll meet it and, unless they have a sort of really strong pushback on it. So, so that's kind of how it works. And now it, it's, uh, it's kind of the same as how a partner would pitch it. If they're sort of thumping their fist on the table saying, you've got to meet this company, others will meet the company unless everyone just sort of really goes flat on it and no one can get excited about it. Um, so that's, that's kind of the process. Got it. That's, that's super helpful. I think the um, upper management, which you alluded to, is something that doesn't get talked about a lot about how you also have to manage the partnership in pushing through what you have conviction in and how much often a sales job it is, both, you know, selling the company to the partnership, but then also selling your fund to a founder. And and I think that skill set sometimes gets overlooked, but you do kind of have to be a salesperson sometimes in venture. Um, I completely agree. Yeah, I mean, I think I think they, they say that VCs get less and less employable than anything other than VC as their careers go on. I think it's probably true, possibly apart from sales, um, because that is there's one part of our job, which is do you have a good nose for a great business and do you have a good sort of sense for, a, for an exciting business? And then, yeah, it's, it's can you pitch the fund to those founders so that you win deals and can you pitch the companies to the partnership so that you get those deals through? I think sales sort of ability is an important part of it. Definitely. And I think another thing that you might have missed out, which is an important trait for a VC, is the ability to find the startup in the first place. And, yeah. you know, it's all good and well recognizing an exciting startup, but almost the, the challenge to begin with is to find that needle in the haystack. So I was wondering, you know, what have you done in order to increase that number of companies coming through episode one's door that are interesting enough to spark potential investment discussions yeah so there, there yeah it's, i mean that's essentially why i was hired so that is the core part of my job is how do we get to see the best companies in the market and so that is what i spend my time doing um how we and i do it is sort of through all sorts of different means and if you think of it like a funnel, the top of funnel, and then um, the, the interesting ones filter through down to the bottom of the funnel where you invest. So the top of the funnel is kind of what we're talking about. And it is really a volumes game. Um, so the, the ideal is to only be passed and to only see really interesting companies. But I think particularly when you start out in VC, you have to accept that it's going to be a numbers game because you don't have a reputation. And so people aren't going to send you the very best deals that they see because you're you're not their first port of call unless you're kind of best mates with someone who who will pass you great deals you have to build a reputation so i think first thing to say is that it's definitely gradual but if we look at all of the portfolio most of the deals will have come through network there's kind of a differentiation because most of the deals that enter our crm won't have come through network but most of the deals that we invest in will have come through network and that's just because the quality of the deals that come through network is much higher um, because they've been through that sort of initial filter of someone else looking at it and thinking, yeah, this is really interesting. I should pass it to episode one. And then a lot comes through angels. And so lots of deals will come through that. And then some accelerators as well. Yeah, so, so I think the, 
actually the more interesting part of our deal flow, at least to talk about, is the sort of outbound stuff. So how, how we go about finding, um, without introduction, the most interesting companies. And, and that's something I've worked on a lot is kind of productizing this um, outbound. A lot of that is identifying leading indicators for the most interesting talent uh, and the most interesting companies. So that might be looking at the most successful angel investors in the UK and seeing who they're investing in, because we're going to tend to invest one round after an angel investment. So we can look into companies' house and find out when so-and-so, who's a successful angel investor, has invested in a company, then we can track that company to be in touch with them and open a conversation so that we know them and know the company when the time is right for them to raise a seed round. And then finding high potential talent uh, that might be senior people from big companies, big tech companies. So perhaps it's a venture back company that's raised 50 million pounds. And this high potential person was a product manager at that company. And now they've listed their job title as founder. Well, that, that person's probably going to be setting up a pretty interesting company because they've learned what works and what doesn't within a high growth startup. And these well-funded VC backed startups have pretty big budgets to sort of train and develop their talent. So they're likely going to be quite a compelling founder who we want to speak to about their round. So those things feed into the sort of top of funnel so that we can identify these companies, open a conversation um, and know about them when they're they're raising. Um, and then there's also things like the seed stage is an initiative that I pulled together where we have 38 funds and it will be 50 for the next one who co-promote an event where ultimately founders will pitch their businesses. So those 50 funds co-promote the event. The tagline is Demo Day Without the Accelerator. It's a place where founders can pitch their business to all of the prospective investors in their company in one go. Uh, the idea came about from an office hours that I ran back in April, where um, it, was a, it was a joint office hours. There were six funds and it was good. And we had 350 applications, but I kind of came away thinking it's just another office hours there are so many of these. Sometimes the companies who are applying are the ones who are struggling to raise their rounds elsewhere and through traditional routes. And there's just a real challenge around attracting the very best founders to these sorts of events. So I thought, well, if you pull together all of the funds, then your proposition to founders is that here's a chance for you to pitch to all of the best known and you know, top performing funds in the UK in one go, you know, with a simple application form and a video. And it, it felt like an easier way to get in front of all of these investors. So the way it works is that we co-promote the event. Any companies who want to pitch do this application form. We then send out those applications forms to all of the funds involved. And sort of, so if we've got B2C funds, we've got B2B funds, we've got software funds, hardware funds, pre-seed, seed. We'll divide up the applications and send the most suitable applications to the most suitable fund. So that's kind of outsourcing the evaluation. So each of those funds get to pick 10 companies that they think look most interesting. They each get 10 votes. They then send those 10 companies back to me and I tot up which companies have received the most votes where those companies then get invited to pitch at demo day. It's a virtual demo day. 
And the idea there is that Demo Day is completely open to anyone. So, well, the latest seed stage Demo Day, we had 850 applications from startups. We had 38 funds. We had 680 um, people sign up to watch Demo Day. And so the beauty of that is that it's not only the funds um, who, who are watching or pitch, it's also a ton of angel investors. There was pretty much every big name Series A fund on the call. Um, so it really is the best place to get in front of all of the prospective investors in your company, whether you're an angel stage company, seed stage, um, and then also you're going to make some connections for Series A if, if, if someone gets in touch. So I think it's a really attractive proposition to founders. And over time, I think the brand will sort of get to a place where people think, okay, yeah, the seed stage is full of fantastic companies. I should really, really apply and try and get pitch at Demo Day. So, so that's another initiative where ultimately, um, although it's not specific to episode one, because all of these funds get access to those companies, uh, it's another way to identify really promising companies um, and to have them pitch. So, so that's the sort of initiative that's more of an ecosystem sort of initiative. But um, I think it could be a really interesting way to filter the most interesting companies and then sort of, so it's ultimately ingesting all of the companies raising money at a given time, crowdsourcing the evaluation um, of them, and then sort of spitting those most interesting companies back out into the ecosystem for all of the investors to, to see and hopefully invest in. That sounds really, really great and fantastic for the ecosystem. And as you said, like a, a great value proposition for the founder. But going back to what we discussed earlier, where, you know, missed out with Hoppen because Hoppen mm. happened, gosh, tongue twister here, um, to get a better offer. Basically, with this initiative, you're opening the doors to many investors and with the best ones like Hopin, you're going to get a lot of people interested and have the risk of missing out on these deals. So I'm curious to get your thoughts on this. Like, does episode one, because Hector's involved, get a sneaky sort of conversation ahead of the pitch day? Or is it, you know, all's fair and love and war, so to speak? Yeah. So I think, I mean, this is exactly what we want. We want the whole messaging around the seed stage is changing to generate term sheets and competition for your round because the very best founders, they can raise money. They don't have to apply to the seed stage. But what they can do by applying to the seed stage is generate more competition for their round. Um, and that's generally a good thing for founders because they're going to get more term sheets. They're going to be able to get better terms. They're going to be able to get better investors because as soon as you have some um, sort of hype around your round, then loads of investors sort of flock towards you and <laughs> start offering you term sheets. So, so that really is the aim of the seed stage is to, is to allow founders to generate more term sheets um, for their round than they've previously been able to. Um, and of course, the beauty of it is that it becomes a complete meritocracy. So if you have 10 funds all wanting to invest in your company, suddenly rather than just being introduced to a couple of funds who, who like it and um, and are able to win your business relatively easy because they're not competing against anyone. If you're competing against 10 funds, then the founder is going to be able to choose who they really think is going to be able to add the most to their company. So it's super founder friendly. It's what the ecosystem wants. It's certainly what founders want. Um, and what I learned through doing all the calls with the various funds to get them on board is that funds are uh, more excited about getting access to new deal flow 
than they are concerned about losing some proprietary deal flow that they saw and no one else did. So it works for both sides of the table. And so, I mean, we do have, uh, you know, founders and entrepreneurs and potential founders listening in. And for those listeners who are interested, what's, you know, their next step in terms of getting involved with the seed stage? Yeah, so it's really pretty easy. Applications are actually already open. We haven't started promoting the um, April demo day yet, but the applications are already open at seedstage.co.uk. And yeah, I'd encourage anyone just to go and go and apply it. So really simple type form where you enter your name, LinkedIn, email, um, sort of short description of what you do, a deck if you have one and a couple of other bits of info. And then you are, you're in the mixer and the funds, when the time comes, will, um, will look through all of those applications and vote on whichever companies they think are interesting. So yeah, I'd strongly encourage anyone to, to apply. So it's a really fair process because, of course, you haven't met the founder by the time you're um, you're looking at the decks, and I think that's part of the benefit of it is there's you really limit the amount of bias that filters into the sort of selection process by um, most of the decision is probably made looking at the sort of description and looking at the website. That's kind of how you decide on your shortlist, and so I think it's yeah it's a really fair process um, and and very easy to apply for. Great. Petra, should we go on to question time? Let's do it. Let's do it. Yeah. Okay. So, Hector, first question. What would you name your venture capital fund? Uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't know why I say this, but I would call it Beach VC. And I don't know why that. I think it's, it's probably daydreaming about having a successful VC fund where you're able to just live on a beach. Um, and I just think it could be quite cool. So, um, if you sort of built a bit of a brand around, um, being pretty chilled out VC, you live, it's quite an easy life and you're probably not much more than money for the companies you're investing in. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, this isn't necessarily my vision for what a funder should be at all, but I just thought I'm kind of surprised that no one on Silicon Valley has set up a fund like that, that it, yeah. it feels very Silicon Valley. I mean, I, I imagine it quite nice, you know, if you could be in LA, maybe set up a nice office on Venice Beach, have your walk and talks <laughs> with the founders and go surfing at five. It'd be in the so end. nice. <laughs> It'd be so nice. Yeah, that's the dream, right? <laughs> I like that. I like that answer a lot. Well, quite bizarrely, it leads me perfectly onto my next question, which is if you were stuck on a desert island with a beach um what three items would you have with you hmm. well i'm learning the piano at the moment so i'd probably take a piano um and, and i absolutely love the piano but can't play it hence what i'm learning so i would take a piano so i'm going to need a massive suitcase for these three items <laughs> um my second item wow this is a hard question on the spot i'm sure i probably thought about it for desert island discs before i would take a knife that was good for chopping and shaping wood because I also love carpentry and would like to be able to make various items on my desert island so I would take that and a third item it's hard um a towel (laughs) (laughs) 
So final one. I suppose this is this is actually quite an important one. So I see behind you is a drinks cabinet. Yeah. So out of all those drinks in there, what would be your preferred drink? So I would take a whiskey. I don't even love whiskey that much, but I like the ritual of it. Mm. It's quite a nice thing to have to sip on. But I might add that if there was gin, lemon juice and sugar in that cabinet, <laughs> then I'd have a cocktail called a white lady because I love it. And it's gin, uh, lemon juice and sugar and Cointreau, which is in that cabinet. Um, but it's a super nice cocktail. That sounds delicious. I might I might try that at home as well. You've got to. Very You've nice. got to. It's amazing. Yeah, very sour and very strong. Very nice. Well, thank you very much for answering these questions. I feel like we know, know you a little bit better now. A few more questions just to wrap up. So one we always ask our guests because I think it's very important to let our lovely listeners know if there's an opportunity around the corner that you've already thankfully described how founders can get in touch with you and um, enter for the seed stage initiative. But we were wondering whether episode one was hiring at the moment. We are not hiring at the moment. I wish I could say we were. But so we've had a fantastic intern for the last couple of months who has now got a full-time job. But that being said, we may well be hiring an intern. What's been working really well is having an intern a couple of days a week. Um, and I think we will probably start looking for someone again over the next you know, few weeks slash months. And so, yeah, always open to kind of receiving a, receiving a CV. And that's good to add to our pipeline of potential candidates for that. Great. Well, you've given a, a good story there of how you managed to get in. So our <laughs> listeners know that uh, yeah. initiative is valued at episode one. Yeah. And uh, for those who are very, very interested and um, are willing to put the time and effort into letting you know that they are a very good candidate either for a role at episode one or indeed an investment opportunity, how do they mm. reach you, Hector? Uh, they can just ping me at hectoepisode1.com. So thanks, Hector, so much for being on the show with us today. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. As always, you can find newest updates on who we're speaking to next on our Twitter page at associated underscore pod. And please continue to write us with your feedback and lovely comments on associatedpodcast at gmail.com. Bye. Bye.